Welcome to The Power of Data, the podcast by Dun & Bradstreet. Data is everywhere, and there is more created every second of every day. Join us to hear from leaders unlocking the value of data. Welcome back. I'm joined today by Sue Langley. Welcome, Sue. Thank you. I'm going to keep it simple and describe your professional career currently in two ways. As non-exec chair of Arthur Gallagher and as a non-executive for the Home Office, but you do many things. Let's start there. I do indeed. I have five roles, so those are the two key ones, but I'm also the Senior Independent Director for UCAR, which is the old Northern Rock and Babylon Bingley, a trustee for Macmillan, and recently, well, a year ago, elected as Alderwoman for the Ward of Aldgate. I know a little bit about the City of London Corporation and its slightly odd quirks, but For our listeners, can you just demystify the City of London Corporation a fraction? Probably not, to be honest, but I'll give it a go. So the City of London Corporation essentially provides the council and business services for the city. And it's divided into 25 wards, of which there are a number of councillors elected, just like our local council. And each ward also has an alderman, or now an alderwoman. And from those 25 aldermen, the Sheriff of London and the Lord Mayor is elected. There we go. So succinct. I'm going to transcribe that and send it over to the City of London Corporation. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk a a little bit about insurance because same way we saw in financial services and in banking, 2008 happened, there was an inflection point and the industry collided with technology at a crazy pace. We haven't had that inflection point necessarily in the insurance industry, although there have been some big losses. But How is technology affecting the sector? What opportunities is it providing, both across propositions for the consumers and the clients, through distribution methods, and how is regulation affecting it? Basically, can you just unpick the entire innovation landscape in insurance? In a minute, yeah. I think you're completely right to point out it's been a lot slower than in the banking industry. So insurance perhaps is seen as a slightly more conservative or traditional industry, especially the wholesale market, so the risks such as energy catastrophe. Um, The personal lines insurance, so the home insurance, motor insurance, were the early adopters. And in fact, Hiscox, one of my previous roles, were the first to roll out a online high net worth insurance product. I think it's accelerated, though, in the last couple of years. One of the challenges for the insurance industry is they are sometimes fond of reiterating the current product rather than innovating in a completely new way. Mm. But you will have seen the Lloyd's plan that was issued a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And that's fairly radical in terms of opening up the market, access, distribution. So I think it's increasing, but I think in insurance it could go faster. So benefits for clients, as in any industry, it's faster access, lower cost, more choice. Let's talk about the more conservative side of the industry. And that's a really polite way of putting it, I think. It's an industry that's always been relationship-based. A lot of deals have been done in restaurants. (laughs) But it's also an industry that hasn't had a huge amount of diversity. Now, I know that you've been a big champion for diversity and others like Inga Bill have done great work in trying to ensure that that diversity across the board of age, of gender, of ethnicity, and ultimately of thought permeates the industry. How have you seen that shift in your career? You're right. I think there are pockets of insurance that are more traditional. So I'm going to point to the wholesale market, the kind of Lloyd's trading market, Mm. whilst the retail insurance is perhaps a little more modern. If you actually look at the stats, 
I think below the age of 40, diversity for gender, for example, is almost 50-50. Mm -hmm. But we tend to lose women. We have this issue in Gallagher. It's called the missing middle. Women drop out and they don't come back. Mm. And that's been common in the banking industry as well. And it used to be common in legal. And a lot of the issue is around if, for example, a woman drops out to have kids and comes back later, how do you protect their client base or their relationships, the people that they actually deal with? because they're distributed to other people during their time away. Well, the legal industry has solved that in terms of how they manage clients, how they explain where their account manager has gone and how they reintroduce when they come back. So I think that is changing. I think there's a real focus on it now, absolutely focus on it in the last couple of years in Gallagher's, but it's not a one-size-fits-all solution, which is why it's actually quite slow to change. I think if I could say something more on that one size fits all, I think when you look at diversity, I think quite a few companies, and this is not just insurance, mm. to try and ensure they treat people equitably, they put a template in place to treat everybody in the same way. The trouble is, personally, I think everybody is an individual, and sometimes you have, have unintended consequences of that because you are looking for everybody to progress and to be the same shape. And of course, we're all completely different. So I think equality and templates are great, but a company has to have the flexibility and the courage to also treat people as individuals because what's important to me is not necessarily what's important to you. Mm -hmm. So to promote people, to get them to stay, I think there has to be a fairly individual approach. You've been championing diversity in insurance, which is critical in my mind. Equally as an older woman in the City of London Corporation, which does mimic the insurance template a little bit. And one of your previous roles actually was at the Department for International Trade. You were the, the CEO of Financial Services, if I remember correctly. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences there? I think governments are actually ahead of the game in terms of diversity and difference of thought because they have been focusing on this for a number of years. I think it's the private sector that's taken a little longer, to be honest, to catch up. So DIT was a fascinating role, a real diverse set of individuals. And perhaps some of the preconceptions you have about governments, I think, were, were completely allayed, I think, within my first couple of months. So I think the focus on investment and trade the government has is brilliant, but it's, it's about how they connect properly to the private sector and to industry. Because quite often the private sector and industry don't see the value they add, and they're not quite sure about how they should interact with them. But also my time in government, you know, you've mentioned that I was on the Women's Business Council, but most of the speaking I do is actually on social mobility. Because as an East Ender, I was the first person now, school ever sent to uni. I've wow. been incredibly lucky in my career. I only have applied for my first job. Uh, so anything I can do, I have, normally I have around 17 mentorees at any one time. Wow. Uh, but anyone I can help move in, because I think that's, I think if you like, that's the next fight when you look at who moves through into management and directors. I realise that I am perhaps, unfortunately, slightly unusual, because I've been very lucky. Do you think that's still the case? Sadly, I do. And I think it comes back to life choices. I think it's back to getting to kids in schools and making them aware of the career paths that they could potentially have, mm. or perhaps taking away that fear factor or belief that they can't do something. I was actually trying to persuade a lovely lady today to stand for election in the uh, corporation. She said to me, I'm not bright enough. This is a senior, brilliant woman in the city. I said, don't be ridiculous. Why would you say that? You know, Because I think we self-limit ourselves sometimes yeah. and it comes from the school. I was very lucky to have a, a dad who told me that anything was possible. So I just sailed through life thinking well, anything is possible, but not everyone is that lucky. Yeah, whether you believe you can or you can't, you'll always be right. Exactly. 
And actually, reflecting on some of the City of London Corporation's work, I went and spoke at a, one of the academies about a year ago, and it was incredible. I couldn't help but feel like if, if the City of London Academy program could expand its reach, we would benefit hugely from that. It's, it's an amazing initiative. I think it's one of the things that the city just doesn't really fully understand what the corporation does. You know, I summarised it in 30 seconds, but obviously they do far more than that. They give away millions to charity. They have the academy scheme. And it's just not well known, I don't think. You know, until I was elected and decided to stand as an woman, I'd worked with the corporation for years. On the other side, when I was at DIT, I worked with the corporation, and I still didn't fully understand what it did, and so I actually became part of it. Very cool. We're going to swing back to insurance, and I want to ask you a little bit about Galliers itself. You've completed several acquisitions in the last few years. What's your growth strategy? How are Gallagher's preparing for the next generation of insurance? We had a period of consolidation for a few years and we've now started M&A again. I mean, the strategic intent, to be honest, is similar to many companies. So we are looking for what we call bolt-ons that are strategic fit, especially in the regional business. We have a lot of regional offices that complements the products that we currently write or actually fill a gap. So we are making a number of smaller acquisitions to actually grow. The focus at the moment is on retail. Wholesale is a harder business in terms of M&A. More often you will have seen that we took the aerospace book from Marsh or bought the aerospace book from Marsh fairly recently. And it's that kind of acquisition. Whilst obviously on the retail side, we are looking for small regional brokers that we can actually bring into the Gallagher fold. So we're talking about investing. Almost every insurance firm out there is investing in its technology, in its infrastructure. And the ultimate thing that underpins that in a world built exclusively really for risk management is data. How are Gallagher's approaching data management and, and is it a core part of your strategy? It's a really interesting area for us and it, it absolutely is and has been for I would say a few years but it's had a real push in the last year because a lot of the focus for Gallagher was on integrating all of the acquisitions that they'd taken on on a fairly quick basis. So it was building a sound platform and then moving on from that with M&A and in terms of development. So data for us is key. And I think if you look at the insurance industry in general, and I am generalizing, I think insurance is good at managing data to understand internal business dynamics and the book of business, but is not so good. And there have been a few attempts at using data to help the customer with risk management. So that's the focus now, and that's a real priority for Gallagher's. What can we do to help manage the risk for the customer and make them understand where their portfolio of products or the cover that they want actually fits globally and what similar industries are doing? I had a, a conversation earlier, a fascinating one, and I, I won't give too much away because it's only a young company, but taking Dun & Bradstreet's proprietary reference ID called the Dun's number, that 87% of Fortune 500 firms use as their internal standard and many insurance firms around the world. And leveraging that linkage to apply it to organizations in buildings, aggregating their credit ratings and then basically bundling a credit rating for a building with alerts applied to it and so on so that you know if one of your tenants undergoes some sort of liquidity event or a bought by private equity, there may be a consolidation strategy so they'll be pulled out so the credit rating then dips for the building. And it's that kind of application of data 
to real world examples that we're just not seeing yet. And it's, it's been a slow take up, I think, not just by the insurance industry, but by, by every industry. I think you're right. And it, if we look back at FinTech, for example, most of the new innovations came from small startups that were then acquired by the bigger banks. And it's probably the same in insurance. If you are an established traditional insurance company, I'm not saying you can't innovate, Mm -hmm. but you know what it's like. It's more difficult to innovate inside of one of those companies. It's easier to bubble out, set up a small company on the side, design something, bring it back in, or to go with the tech startups and actually to bring one of those in or use those products. But it's back to your earlier question. I think you're right, that kind of innovative use of data has a slow take up across FS, but probably slow in insurance because of its traditional nature. But I do think that's changing. Yes, we were in New York earlier this week and I'm reflecting on another quote from Henry Ford this time to Bill Gates, who, when he talks about innovation, talks about an underwhelming rate of change over two years, but then we end up underestimating the rate of change over 10 years. And I think that's been particularly true potentially in, in insurance with things like data, with distributed ledger technologies, and a relatively slow take up. But I am very, very excited about the next 10 years in this industry. I think there's going to be some really cool stuff happening. Let's talk about data and how we can use it for social good and for things like diversity and social inclusion. Data can help provide transparency which is critical uh, in the world that we operate in. Recently, there was a publication of information via the Gender Pay Gap report, and it talked about what businesses need to do to focus on reducing the gender pay gap. How are Gallagher's and some of the other organizations you're working within using that data, I guess, ultimately to benefit the employees and to create a much fairer ESG policies? The um, gender pay gap reporting came out of the Women's Business Council, which obviously I was on for six years. And I am a huge fan of transparency because it's another quote, what gets measured gets done. Mm. And I know there was a lot of pushback across industry around pay gap reporting. And there are lots of reasons why and behind that and why it's difficult to explain what's behind a single hard figure. But I think it's focused the mind It started a debate and a conversation that wasn't there before. I think it's flushed through some standard, what I think, to be honest, across FS were excuses. You know, women drop out and don't want to come back or whatever. Because it's forced companies to actually look at the reasons behind that. So Gallagher's have done an awful lot on diversity for years and have recently run a campaign around this is me. So, you know, what, what is the difference between people? And I think there are a few factors under there. So one, for example, in the wholesale market is the thing that we've spoken about earlier, which is that if women take time out to have kids and have lost their client or relationship base, how do they come back in at a senior level? How do you maintain that client base? And there are things, you know, the legal industry has essentially fixed that. But there are quite a few more subtle things. If I look at my mentorees, most of which, to be honest, are female, they look at the senior roles and basically say, well, I I don't want to do that because they look at the way that a role is done. And quite often it is very long hours. It might be out in the evening. But my point to them is you can do the role standing on your head and painted orange. All you have to do is achieve the objectives. And I think until we actually get different role models and more women through and people see it being done in a different way, we kind of perpetuate the issue. I've had a lot of mentors. I've been very lucky to have a lot of mentors in my life. But I think mentoring is really difficult because you naturally try and coach somebody into your image. I'm probably guilty of that. I always think if we had all female balls, we'd end up with all female managers, you know. And there's no malice there or it's just... 
people are trying to be helpful. But when you're mentoring someone, it's back to this point about difference. You've got to realise that you and I, and we, we're all completely different. And to mentor and to get people through to a senior level, you've got to have a high enough EQ to understand what matters to them and therefore how you can flex the organisation. So when we come back to what data is actually required, there is a hard data about the pay gap that forces the conversation. But I think the actions are much more complex and they've got to be quite intelligent about the social trends and what's actually driving behaviours. It's not data, it's behaviours. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and in fact, recently in your, your home office role, you very kindly made an introduction for me to the anti-slavery unit. And that's a perfect example of an area that can benefit from data. And Dun & Bradstreet are starting to do some uh, some very interesting stuff, and I can't talk too much about it, but that was very kind. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So we're coming towards the end of it. I'd like to ask some slightly lighter-hearted questions. Definitely no more questions about insurance. If you know as long as they're not about football. Also not about football, or rugby <laughs> for that matter. Oh, well, we sponsored the rugby at Gallagher's, remember? That's also true. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, it still feels a little bit raw yeah, from uh, does, last yes, weekend. Yes, even I did, yes. <laughs> You've spent a bit of time outside of the UK in your various roles. Which area do you think is going to have the most substantial growth over the next 10, 15, 20 years? Sure, I think that's a difficult one to call. China, you know, Asia are the kind of areas we look to. But I think especially with Brexit, it's really important not to neglect any of our markets at the moment. I just think, you know, any good company basically needs to make sure we are as open and transparent as possible and as easy to trade with and have access to as possible going forward. And, and to me, this that's the key priority. I'm in total agreement. What's on the Sue Langley bucket list? A nice holiday in the Maldives and the desert islands. <laughs> it's on everyone's bucket list, surely. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. Do you know, it goes back to that first question. I call my career an accidental career because I only ever applied for the first job. When I look back at what I've done, I've realised I've been incredibly lucky. I would never have named these jobs when I left school or when I did a geography degree. So who knows? And you talked about mentors. It's a question I love asking people. I've had some wonderful mentors in my relatively short career. Who have been some of the most impactful people that you've had the fortune of learning from? I've learned from so many people and people teach you different things because once again they're individuals and have something to bring. I remember a lady NED when I first joined the Northern Rock Board. You may find this a slightly strange one to quote but she took me out and told me I did not dress for success. And it's a very interesting conversation around ability and perception in a role. Yeah. How are you perceived and the unfair perceptions around how you potentially look and how you dress. So I always remember that one as uh, not necessarily a key one, but it's the most impactful one because nobody had ever said that to me before. I find it hard to believe that you would have turned up in your pyjamas. So it sounds like it might have been a bit tough. No, she, she was very, she was very demanded and very tough. But yes, it was all around looking about, you know, slightly individual with, yeah. I feel naked without my tie. Yes. I hope you're not judging what me. What can I say? Sue, <laughs> so we've come to the end. A huge, huge thank you for coming in and speaking to us today. And... Best of luck with everything that you have going on in, in your five jobs. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me in. Find out more about how Dun & Bradstreet can help your business be better. Contact us at marketinguk at dnb.com. And remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts.